Hi, welcome to Talk About the Passion. This is episode 10 of the podcast, which means uh, nothing, nothing really, uh, just that I've now released 10 of these. Uh, and this 10th one's a doozy. I've loved uh, every episode I've done so far, uh, at least the ones that I've a guest. And, uh, you know, everyone's been interesting to talk to, and the feedback from friends and strangers alike has been great. So uh, I thank the listeners, but especially the, the guests I've had. Uh, you know, they've all made the episodes interesting. I make a, you know, like a skeleton, and they, they add pretty much the soul and meat to the episode, I guess you could say. Uh, most of these conversations I've given the guest a little idea of, you know, things we can talk about, you know, a few days before I meet them, and uh, mainly just to do that, give us sort of a skeleton or a path to travel down without rambling off too much or, you know, going on to tangents. Uh, the more I do with these, though, the more I think it's fine to go off on, you know, different directions. Focus is, is good for some situations and conversations, but it's not necessary. Uh, with that said, though, my guest uh, today is Kevin Patey. You may know Kevin from uh, the band The Raging Teens, or uh, you might know him as Jittery Jack. Uh, I don't think I could have asked for a more interesting and focused guest. Uh, as you'll see in the episode, I didn't have to do too much talking and uh, ask too many questions. Uh, I think he pretty much understood what I'm trying to do with these conversations you know, get a person to sort of tell a story of, you know, how they got where they are creatively or, you know, developed whatever lifelong passion they have. Uh, Kevin, you know, pretty much started it uh, growing up in England and hearing music on the radio as a kid, you know, and then, you know, coming to Massachusetts surrounded by uh, dudes with, you know, popped collars listening to Foreigner and the Eagles or whatever. Uh, you know, and then he talks about the rockabilly scene in the, in the in Boston in the 80s and 90s and uh, goes into how the Raging Teens formed and, uh, you know, and then working with the Raging Teens with his ex-wife, uh, folk singer Mary Lou Lord. And, uh, yeah, and then just up to now where he's working under the name Jittery Jack. And, uh, you know, Kevin's another hilarious person and uh, an amazing storyteller. I don't want to get too into it here because there's some seriously funny fucking stories he tells on here. Uh so yeah, anyway, uh, the Raging Teens are no longer uh, a steady working band. They are, but they are playing a show this coming weekend. Uh, if you're listening to this, the day I release this, uh, December 9th at Great Scott in Alston, Mass, uh, which is also a record release party for the teens who are uh, releasing a single called "The Drinking Age," uh, which uh, he talks about where that title comes from, and uh, that's on Swell Tune Records, who are also putting this. Uh, holiday party together and uh, also in the bill are uh, bloodshot bill uh sean mencher and uh, nate gibson who is also releasing a record on uh, swell tune and again this is uh december 9th 2017 at great scott in alston mass and the show again is put together by swell tune records uh, so you should definitely check this out if you're into uh you know rock and roll roots music rockabilly that that kind of thing it should be great and uh, Kevin also has a website for Jittery Jack that's uh, just jitteryjack.com. And uh, it looks like it's it's pretty up to date. And there's a lot of uh, stuff on there, including uh, a place where you can buy some of his music as well as uh, something I, I actually completely forgot to ask him about on the uh, on the podcast. But that's his, uh, he, he had this TV show, uh, I think it was called Having a Time with uh, Jittery Jack, where he was interviewing... Uh, people from the the rockabilly world and that kind of thing and uh 
I, th- I thought it was great. So uh, hopefully he'll uh, address that or, or let people know what's going on with that because that, that was pretty awesome. And as uh, for this podcast, uh, one last thing before we get into it. Uh, a couple new things here. First of all, you can find me on uh, Google Play now as well as uh, Stitcher. So if you use those, uh, however you find your podcast on those uh you should be able to find me on there if you just look me up i guess uh i have a facebook page for this podcast that's uh facebook.com slash t-a-t-p podcast.com and then there's the podbean page which is uh talk about the passion podbean.com and you can contact me there if uh, you want to be on the podcast or if you know of someone who should be uh And you can always leave me a review on iTunes, which I appreciate uh, seeing those. Uh, And you don't even have to write anything. You can just, you know, click however many stars you think uh, this podcast is worthy of. Uh, My Facebook page also takes reviews as well. And uh, I'm actually pretty familiar with doing reviews on Facebook, but that's that's a whole other thing. Uh, So you have all these website addresses and dates I just threw at you. if not, I'm just going to sit here and read all of them over again. So, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so let's get into this episode, and uh, thanks again for listening. And uh, here's Kevin Payton. Thanks. So I'm here with my friend uh, Kevin Payton in... Uh, Beautiful Manchester by the sea here. Um, do you, where, where does Casey Affleck live? Does he live? Uh-huh. Uh, he's only allowed to come into town and make movies. He's yeah, just, yeah, he's not allowed to reside here. He gets a little <laughs> apparently gets a little gets handy with the ladies. Yeah, it's a word around town. I yeah. guess I don't know. I'm yeah. kidding. Yeah, kidding, yeah. Casey. <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. Um, so w- you grew up in uh, England. Yes. Well, I was I was born in England, mm-hmm. and I moved there till I, I lived there till I was twelve. Yeah. And uh, and then I moved here to Manchester by the Sea, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess you were asking me to give a little background on my music. Yeah, yeah. Upbringing. So when you were when you were a kid, did you have like a family member or friends or? Kind of. Well, music was always a really big thing in my family because my my dad had been like an amateur uh, guitar player, mm-hmm. and he had been in a band, um, but he wasn't very good. So yep. they um, they actually fired him and made him the manager. Yep. So, uh, and they were called Persian Wood. Oh, no. It was the 60s, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, he was always very into music. And my, my grandfather, who's actually was a really neat guy, he was a massive, massive music fan. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that he's a guy that probably would have been a musician, except he lost his hand in a wood saw when he was like 13 in like yeah. 1930 or something like that. So there right. was there was no putting hands back on. Right, right. So he had like a... A nub, essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he loved to dance and he loved music. In fact, many years later, after my grandmother passed away, we were at the house going through stuff, and uh, I was going through all his records, of which I and when he ended up passing away, I have I have a lot of his records. But yeah. um, we were going through stuff, and he had a bunch of eight tracks, and there was uh, "Amma Gumma" by Pink Floyd. Oh yeah. And yeah. I was like, "Why do you have this?" He goes, "Goes I, I, I goes I look kind of interesting." He goes, "It's kind of weird, but I like it." And I was like, yeah. "This is really weird." That's okay, the weirdest. Record yeah, that's too. a very did not expect to see that one in, yeah. in your stack. But um, so yeah, so music was always always a big thing, and then um, I think just being a kid in England, the radio at least back then I don't know what it's like now, but back then it was um, the radio was really great in the sense of like you know 
even like the main radio stations, of which there weren't many back then. There was a little bit of independent radio, kind of like the TV. Right. And um, you'd have like Radio One would just be playing music all day, and they play like uh, they play a Beatles song, of course. Right. And then they play like the latest, you know, Bucks Fizz, you know, disco record. Right. Followed by like Buddy Holly. So it was right, just right. like really weird. And there was always like, you know, radio was kind of cool in that sense because most of the stuff that you were hearing for newer stuff, you know, you might not be that into, but it was kind of cool to hear all this great stuff, you know. And we'd go on road trips a lot. And my my um, my dad had like, uh, he had like the Buddy Holly uh, and the Crickets. Um, I think it's like 20 greatest hits. I have the album upset, but it yeah. was like a set. I remember we went on a vacation and that was like one of three right. that he had. And it was in rotation. So like all those songs just stuck with me. I, I, yeah. So that was always probably my first love was like early rock and roll. Even even though I was hearing other stuff, there was something about that music that, that drew me in. And then I remember being about uh, probably about, let's see, it would have been probably seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And um, we used to watch Top of the Pops on Thursday night because yeah. back then you had BBC One, BBC Two, and ITV, independent television, which was the only other channel. Right. There was no cable. There was yeah, nothing yeah. else. Right? You had three channels. And so Top of the Pops was a big deal because it was like, um, you know, they played like the top 10 hits of the whatever of the, of the week. Yeah. And uh, music videos were just starting to happen. Right. And um, I remember watching, and this band came on in this song, and I was like, I was just blown away to the point where I, I had to, because we didn't have a VCR. That you, right. could, you just only could remember it. And yeah. I was able to get the name. And I made my mom take me to town that weekend, and I bought it with my own money. First record I bought with my own money was Madness Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And yeah. the album was, uh, it was the song Baggy Trousers. Yeah, yeah. Which which still, I get a kick out of watching the video. Yeah, so yeah. I became like, you know, I'm like seven, eight years old, get super into like, early like second wave ska stuff mm-hmm. like the two-tone stuff specials yeah. madness english beat all those bands i was really into that yeah yeah and from there i got into like kind of kind of like the mod music stuff mm-hmm. so when i got i went to live with my dad when i was about nine or ten mm-hmm. and uh i was there for you know almost four years three or yeah. four years and um i started getting really into this whole mod thing because the jam were really big then you yeah, know yeah. and uh so I was super into Paul Weller, but I liked The Who and The Small Faces and all that stuff. Right. But I always, always really liked uh, the old old rock and roll stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I came to the States, it was a little bit of a culture shock because, you know, the, well, you grew up in Swampscott, which is yeah, not yeah. that different than Manchester. You know, it was, suddenly there was like, um, I used to go to like a Wednesday night disco, which was like, you know, for underage kids. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was highly stylish. Yeah. And I come to Manchester by the sea and it's like, you know, popped eyes out collars and like you know back corduroys and stuff oh, yeah, I'm like yeah. oh man you know so this was the 80s we're, we're around the same yeah age, like 83 84 yeah. yep i'm like oh man alive you know so that was a big wake up but but because of that i started hanging around and gravitating towards people that like music yeah so i got turned on to stuff like stuff i'd never heard of you know but like uh like like classic rock stuff yeah, yeah. like um like I like the Who, but I like the earlier stuff, and I start yeah. listening to the older stuff, and then I, I'm getting into like Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. I'd never, I grew up in England, I never even heard of Led Zeppelin, yeah, yeah, you know, until funny. I moved to America. Go figure. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, you know, I've always thought I, I think I've always enjoyed like kind of running with the gang a little bit, like yeah. being with a group of like-minded people that are really yeah, like-minded yeah. shit. You know, mm-hmm. I always like I, when I, I had an older sister in England who was very much into like. Um, she liked a lot of like first wave like oi punk stuff. So I, I I liked a lot of like, you know, the Clash and I liked uh, Stiff Little Fingers was a big oh, band yeah. that I liked. Then she got like goth and got mm-hmm. really into like uh, Bauhaus and yeah. um, and like uh, 
soft cell was her oh, big, yeah. big, you know. Yeah. Unfortunately, I know every soft cell song off like the first two records because, <laughs> yeah. you know, English house back then, you know, there's like the one bathroom and yeah. she put the record on when she went to take her bath. And, you'd... and I was, my bedroom was in the attic, so I had oh, to listen yeah. to the whole damn thing. <laughs> I think sometimes she'd pay me to go turn the record over or something yeah. like that. So, so that's tattooed in my brain. Yeah. So anyway, I come to America and I'm getting exposed to this weird like classic rock stuff, but I, I knew a little bit more than the average guy in town about punk rock. So I would turn people into like The Clash. Yeah. And so I started kind of like getting more and more into punk rock. But, but the weird thing for me, because I've been listening to some of your podcasts here, I'm gonna th- for the record here. Yeah. And I'm not gonna say I don't entirely dislike it because there certainly are some songs that I grew to appreciate through the years. I could never get into hardcore. I never yeah. understood it. Yeah, I have a lot of friends like that that are. I was a sucker for a song, and, you know. Right. And I was like, well, what the hell is this all about? I mean, there are some standout <clears throat> tunes. That yeah, are great, yeah. You know, right. like Murphy's Law and stuff. But like, yeah. um, but I, but I just could never really get into that. So I was yeah. like, I was in this like weird conundrum mm-hmm. of being like the punk rock kid. Of course, I'm at that age now where my buddies that are into music. Are all getting into like smoking weed and taking yeah, acid, yeah. and right. what goes hand in hand with that? Grateful Dead shows, yeah. dude. Right, free love and all. Yeah. Right. I think I, I think I've you. We maybe talked about you. Oh yeah, we're into them for because I, yeah. I also had a, a Grateful Dead. Oh yeah, phase it's a, that doesn't. It's a, it's a phase, man. But you know what? To this day, I still, I do still like the Dead. Yeah, um, same here. Back then. It was like I like to go to the show because it was like a big experience thing. Yeah, and I was like, oh, the records are kind of like they're not great, they're kind of shit. <laughs> now I'd rather the records because it's yeah, not yeah, like yeah. a nineteen-minute heroin-induced yeah. guitar solo. It's there's... awful in the middle of it, you know. It's just the song, and there are some great songs there, you know. And there I think is. that was probably a catalyst for getting into like a lot of roots music too, because they would uh, be it country stuff or old-timey stuff or, or or early rock and roll stuff. Yeah. They they were covering a lot of tunes like that, you yeah. know. Albeit yeah, maybe yeah. not the best, but right. so that was kind of re exciting my my interest in that. And um, you know, I think it was a very short phase, a couple yeah. of years probably. So when, by the time I went off to college, I had cut my hair again, and I was right. back into like, and I moved to Boston. I remember this too. Part of the reason why I probably didn't like hardcore and stuff yeah. is because living up here. We were just far enough away that we couldn't really get the radio stations from Boston, other than like BCN and the big yeah, stations. Yeah. I couldn't get like, you know, the college stations. Occasionally, yeah, right, so. I could get like WMWM. Yeah. And I remember if, if like the weather was just right, I might get like, you know, MFO. Right. And I remember hearing like, I remember with my cassette, my boombox recording the shows and being like, hearing like, you know, surfing in Dorchester Bay and these yeah. like I was like this stuff's kind of cool but it seemed like a it seemed like a million miles away right, you know right. I started going into town as I got older go to Harvard Square and stuff and I go buy records but I was like at that point I just felt like I wasn't a hardcore kid so I didn't really get that right and I did I did go to some shows with the rat yeah and see some because I had friends that were into it but then but when I got to college in 88 suddenly I was just like okay I want to be in a band I want to yeah. like you know I want to go out I want to see shows and I was out seeing shows all the time I go yeah. to the rat I got really into the Deb Milkman because I thought they were oh, really, yeah. they were so funny, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I thought it was musically kind of cool, and they were always very. I've always been a fan of like the funny stuff, so yeah. I'll go see the Deb Milkman a lot, right? Um, but then I started getting into like hanging around with people, Boston people. The Bostons were just starting to kind of starting to happen, yeah. Then, so that was kind of fun because I kind of knew them indirectly, yeah. Through through going to shows and meeting people that knew them. Um, I started dating this girl. I dropped out of college, mm-hmm. and I, I moved into a house in Mission Hill with, like, six other guys, yeah. purely with the intent of, like, starting a band, yeah. which sort of failed miserably because uh, no one lived in the house liked the same shit. Like, right. my buddy awesome. Eric, super into, like, um, 
you know, that whole indie rock thing that was starting to happen then, like yeah. Buffalo Tom and Jefferson oh, yeah, Jr., yeah. and I fucking hated that stuff. You yeah. know? In hindsight, Buffalo Tom, I think they have some good songs. Yeah. Still, Jay Maskus is a nice enough guy. I've actually met him a couple times, but yeah. I don't get that, man. I was, yeah, yeah. you know, it's just not my thing. Yep. And so I could never get into that. I just like to have a good time. I didn't want it to be too serious. It just seems so serious, you know? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and then, um, and the hardcore thing seemed really serious. That's probably why I like the Dead Milkman. Yeah. So I think that that's why I started hanging around this bar, Fathers too. Oh yeah, yeah. Outside of Kenmore Square, yeah, yeah. Sunday night was like bad hair night. They called it because all the <laughs> punk rock kids were hanging out there, right? Yeah, yeah. So I met um a bunch of guys in that scene, like uh, my friend Dana Stewart, yeah. who uh, later was in the Racketeers, but he played with uh he played with John Felice and the Devotions. Yeah. So I got to meet Felice and like mm -hmm. that kind of like first generation punk rock guys. Yeah. And I. Uh, and then some of the O'Halloran brothers. Nice. And then I joined, um, I joined Miss Xana Don't in the Wanted, oh, right. which was like Boston's kind of country man at the time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when we when I originally joined the band, it was like Johnny O'Halloran on bass, uh, Stiggs McCormick on guitar, uh, Dana was on drums. There was a chick called Mary Ellen who played the fiddle. Yeah. Um, that, I don't really remember who else was in the band, but uh, they all quit pretty soon after. Yeah, but yeah. I decided I really like being in a band. I'm going to stay. And I actually got a bunch of guys. I knew Jay Akari, who had been the second round moving targets guy. Yeah. Got him on, on drums and my buddy Billy Hoare on bass. And this guy, Pete Fair, who's a smoking guitar player, which was a big relief for me because I had been the lead guitar player at that point, which is yeah, yeah. not a good thing because I wasn't really <laughs> very good. Yeah. Uh, so Pete Fair came in. He's like a ringer, you know? So I was yeah, like, yeah. all right, well, this is cool. I just get to play my chords now and right. have fun. You know, I'm like single guy. In the the city, I'm like 21, 20, yeah. 21. Yeah. I can just meet chicks and have fun. <laughs> this is great. That's what it's all about, man. It was a big catalyst that, back yeah, then, yeah, for sure, you know? But me and Dana spent a lot of time together back then, so we start getting into, like, you know, we both like punk rock stuff. He was definitely more into the hardcore thing, but he also liked the dead, so we had yeah. that in common. Huh. But we liked a lot of, um, you know, he, know, he knew a lot about music, and he was starting to get into, like, I knew, like, my... You know my my core guys like you know Eugene Vincent's and you, mm -hmm. you, you know Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis and stuff right. like that. But he was starting to like be like, hey, check this out, and we're starting like going through like the Sun Records catalog and oh, then yeah. finding guys like Hugh and Duvall and like really going down the wormhole of like fifties rock and roll and I mm -hmm. guess rockabilly, you know. Yeah. And uh, then we met like um, a couple like-minded people like uh, John Porth who who was uh, John ended up being in the Racketeers and, and he was in the Conks too. Yep. Um, and there was a whole crew of us, and we used to go see, um, we'd go see the Cranktones. Yeah, yeah. Play it. Uh, they play the Midway, or they play the Brandon Bean, and I was living in JP at the time. Yeah. And um, we would, uh, that was kind of a nucleus for me of like the whole, uh, that was like the seed of like the, of the Boston Rockabilly movement, if you will, in the early 90s yeah. to the mid 90s. Just mm -hmm. going to see those guys and all of us trying to like, figure out like we want to be in a band yeah yeah but none of us were really that good and we're going mm -hmm. to go see like little frankie who's great you yeah know what i mean and we're like oh well how are we going to do this you know but bit by bit people started coming into the picture like tom umberger came in who was like um from virginia and a great guitar player yeah and um you know and and so bands started forming and you know suddenly it was just like the right time yeah yeah like that indie rock thing was boring to a lot of people mm -hmm. and um you know uh Heart, a lot of people were kind of getting out of the punk rock thing and being like, I, you know, feel a little silly about you know. the hardcore scene at that at that point. I was I I at the end of the '80s. I kind of I pretty much went from like being a skinhead to dead shows. Like I still had like a shape. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wearing like a bruises shirt to like a yeah, dead show. you know. So you kind of get out of that thing, and so I think I just I like to have a good time, you know. Yeah, and I was it was like, too this serious. Is, like you were this is before. a really fun thing, and like 
Everything else was really serious, which is ironic because I ended up marrying like a chick who was like extremely immersed <laughs> in the entire yeah, indie yeah. rock thing. But um, so so we start this this band, and it, and it just was I think the right time. And yeah. the '90s in Boston was great. So anytime a band would come through town, we'd have a whole bunch of people go, and then we start our own bands, and yeah. we'd like we'd open for like Big Sandy, you know, yeah, or like yeah. Dick Dickerson and guys like this that are coming through town, and we're like, you know, we our whole thing was like let's take care of them and put Boston on the map and. Which we did in the '90s. The Boston scene was great, and and what I liked about it too was it was it was all sorts. It was like, you know, there was like punk rock guys and skinheads yeah, and hippie yeah. dudes. And yeah, it was yeah. like it was just a good time. You like yeah. music, you come out, you have a good time. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so that was kind of fun. And yeah. um, yeah, I'm rambling on now. I'm, oh I'm, no, that's I'm, that's I'm I'm getting into the midst of my musical career. <laughs> I, where did the time go? Where did the years go? So yeah, so that was a lot of fun. And then and then I I formed the. Uh, I wanted to be in the Racketeers yeah. really badly because mm -hmm. they were like the kind of up and coming band and they were yeah, kind of yeah. cool and I really wanted to be in the band. And Dana was my buddy, mm -hmm. and um, there was this dude John Porth who ended up being in the Conks. Yeah, he and I were kind of vying for the same position of being like rhythm guitar player in the Racketeers. Yeah, and they picked him over me, and I remember I was really pissed about it. Yeah, yeah. But you know, Dana said to me, he goes, he goes, we need more bands. Like you're wasted in this band. You got to start your own band, which I thought was just a line at the time. But right, right. in hindsight, he might have been right. You know. Yeah. And John was really, really a stillist of his day, extremely knowledgeable about music. So I think for for them, like he was a huge asset because yeah, he yeah. bring a lot of cover stuff to the table, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, and he was a, he was a fun guy and and pretty animated. So I was like, all right, well then, I'm gonna start my own band then. Yeah. You know? yeah. So I actually started a band with. Um, me and Jack uh, Hanlon from the Amazing Crown started okay. a band called the Loudermilk Brothers. Yeah, that was just me and Jack. Yeah, uh, but we would have like a guest guitar player. Mm -hmm. uh, like we had little Frankie a couple times, which was such a treat to be like, "Wow, this is a guy who's in the Cranktones. He's going to play with us now." Yeah, Kevin Stevenson, who was uh, from the Shards. Yeah, yeah, and he had been in a band called the Invaders, which was their rockabilly band. Okay, Kevin would play with us sometimes. Yeah, and then uh, Jack had a buddy. Uh, this is really bad because I'm going back. Geez, 25 years now, but. I'll have to ask Jack because I don't remember the guy's name. But he played guitar and he played banjo too, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. And then we got this dude, Victor, who was an old buddy of us, this former skinhead guy. Oh, I Talk remember really Victor. Back, like that. Victor, yeah. He's that guy, yeah, I yeah. I remember him. He was... Yes, that's yeah. the guy. Anyway, yeah. Former skinhead kid, yeah, right? Yeah. He, uh, he bought himself a washboard. <laughs> and we were like, this is hilarious. We want Victor in the band. But he actually had a pretty good time and he bought a snare yeah. drum too and he learned how to kind of play it. So we're like, that's it. You're in the band. So, yeah. so we ended up... Uh, you know, we start playing out, almost playing some shows and stuff. And um, but Jack was in the amazing Royal Crowns, whatever yeah, the heck yeah. they were at that point. And um, you know, that band was starting to kind of really take off. So yeah. Jack was like, "Obviously, this is this is a hobby thing. If I'm in yeah. town, fair enough." So we had a gig booked at the Limwood mm -hmm. with uh, it was like a December show, like December six or something weird. Yeah. And um, Dana's like. Uh, you and Jack want to do the show? We're like, yeah. So it was like the Racketeers. I think the Cranktones were on the bill. I forget. It was like kind of like a big Christmas party show. Yeah. And then like, I'd actually been living up in New Hampshire at the time. Yeah. Because I had uh, I'd had a fallen out with my uh, my ex wife, so I was staying with a buddy of mine up there. Yeah. And uh, I'd gone to Indianapolis to this festival, and I met a couple of crazy guys out there. This guy Jim Gove and uh, Keith Schubert. Okay. And uh, they were from New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. So when I'm living in Dover, we'd, I'd hang out with these guys. And it yeah. turns out Keith plays the drums and. And, and Jim played the bass. Yeah. So we get together and start jamming. Mm -hmm. So we got this little band going, but I was like, I'm really not very good at guitar. And I said, I already decided we need to get a good guitar player so I don't have to do it. Yeah. Um, 
and I just want to sing and play rhythm guitar. So I'm like, yeah. well, we got this friend, and they're pretty good, but like they're a chick. Right. And I was like, well, I don't care. Can they play? But like, yeah. So I remember we were we used to rehearse in Jim's basement. Yeah. He still lived at his parents' house, and Amy came over. Yeah. Like this, like kind of like tough chick attitude, and leather yeah, yeah. jacket, kind of like a little bit punk rock hair. Yeah. That was might have had like purple in it or something, and yeah. she's got like this really shitty. Fender solid state crappy amp. Yeah, yeah. And this like Epiphone Les Paul. <laughs> and she plugged it in and it sounded terrible. Yeah. But I could tell she could really play, you know. Yeah. I was like, wow. And she was really young. She was 18, you know. Yeah. So I was like, well, this is really cool. So I said, um, I said, I'll tell you what we're gonna do. We're gonna get together tomorrow, whenever the hell it was. I said, I'm gonna bring my amp and my guitar. Yeah. So I brought like my fender amp and my uh, my telecaster. And I said, just try playing through that. And it was like, bum. It was like the big band moment. I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. my God. you know. And we weren't very good. I mean, they were, Keith was 18, too, I think, at the time. And he yeah. was, his timing was a little wackadoo. Jim was quite good. Yeah. But we kind of, we started working on this thing. I was like, well, you know, if we can get a set together, we can I can pull some strings and we can play Boston, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm connected down there, right? right? <laughs> so I got the show with Jack. And then, like, two weeks before, Jack's like, I can't do it. Yeah. You know, the crown's got something out of town. I got to go. And I'm like, oh, man, I was really bummed. So I said, you know, I asked these guys. I'm like, do you guys want to play a show in Boston? They're like, well, you think we could do that? I was like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's fine. So, But we didn't have a name, yeah. you know? So I remember I had been talking to uh, to Dana and John Porth about that I met these kids in New Hampshire, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and I'm like probably 25, 26. Yeah. But they were young, but like 18. Jim was 21, I remember that, because yeah. he and I could go out drinking. But right. Keith and Amy were like 18 or 19 or something like that Right. by this point. And um, they, uh, we didn't have a name for the band. So John Porth is the one that said, because um, we used to be really in this compilation record of New England Rock and Rolls. So it was a whole series. There was, yeah. there was, I think there's four or five now, but back then there was like, I think, three. Um, and they're called The Raging Teens. They yeah, put yeah. out Norton Records. Okay. So we're out having drinks, yeah. and Dana's like, well, i got to make a flyer for the show. What the hell is this band called? Yeah. And Porth goes, The Raging Teens. And Dana's <laughs> like, I love it. So yeah. we became The Raging Teens. Nice. And Keith and Amy hated it yeah. because um, they were underage. So right. they're, like, they're going to know we're not old enough to drink. Right. You know. So so we played the show, and I actually just found a crappy um, Hi-8 tape of the first show. Oh, really? I don't have a Hi-8 camera, so right. I, I'm trying to find one so I can switch yeah, it up. Yeah. But, um, but we played at the Linwood. Nice. And... Uh, I remember it was, uh, we weren't very good, but people really liked it. I remember after the show, little Frankie from the Cranktones came up to me and said, you're the best rockably band in Boston. I'm like, All right, now you're clearly being funny. Right. He goes, no, he's like, you don't understand. He goes, I have to try and forget everything I know to play this music because he goes, this is teenage music. Right, right. He goes, and I've been playing the blues and stuff. You know, he's, he's probably, you know. Late 40s at that point, you right. know, whatever. But he was like, uh, you know, I have to try and forget all I know to play this. He goes, and these are kids out of the, you know, New Hampshire's like the, you know, hillbilly equivalent yeah, yeah. of the Northeast, right? right it's right. like, we're like the deep south of the Northeast up yeah, there, yeah. right? Yeah. So these kids were kind of like, kind of hillbillies in their own way, right? Yeah, yeah. Amy, certainly, you know, she had right. an unusual childhood. So, um, so, so they asked us if we would open for them, and they had this new band called the Spurs, a Western swing band. Yeah. So we got, we already had like a second gig, and we're like, well, this is great. So, so that was 96. Were you doing covers or mostly? mainly covers? Yeah, yeah. Back, back then it was the first show was definitely all covers. But yeah. I started, you know, I'd, I'd already gotten into writing some songs with the uh, Loudermilk Brothers thing, so I was like, okay, I can write songs. This is yeah. gonna be so. I so I just started writing songs, you know, yeah, yeah. and uh, and I think within, you know, it was just the right time. Like I said, the the, the rockabilly thing was starting to happen in Boston. These kids were young, so I think that helped. Yeah, yeah. And um, and plus having Miss Amy in the band was always cool because she's you know. You know, she she'll hate me for saying this, but she's super cute. 
but yeah. she can play like there's no tomorrow, oh, right? Yeah. So yeah, people were just blown away, like, who is this young chick playing? Like, how does she even know about this stuff, right? right? right. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, so it was fun. So we did that for, jeez, oh, you know, we ended up, uh, Jim left and we got Matt Murphy on bass. Jim was only there, I think he might have been there for like the first year. Yeah. And then um, we were going to go on tour. And mm-hmm. he was like, I'm out. I can't go on tour. I'm at college and I'm almost done and I'm not dropping out. Meanwhile, I feel bad because I convinced Amy to drop out of college. <laughs> she had one <laughs> semester left. Really? Of which she never went back. Really? Still to this day? Yeah, and the, and I think the credits are like useless at this point, so right. I, I think every once in a while she likes to remind me of that. But, you know? <laughs> I was like, well, think of the fun life we've had, you know? <laughs> so that was so at that time, I'm back with with my ex-wife, who yeah. was um indie rock chick, Mary Lou Lord. Yep, yep. She was getting signed to Sony Records at that time, so it was kind of like, it was kind of a cool time because we had like, you know, She's making a record, like like a real record, you know, yeah, like yeah. going to L.A. at Sunset Sound, right, right. you know, using Jim Morrison's from the Morrissey Hotel band, <laughs> right? We just talked about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, his his booth and all this stuff. So it was kind of cool. So I'm bouncing back and forth to L.A. It was exciting. Then we went on tour, Yeah. and she needed a keyboard player, and uh, Amy's a great piano player. So she's yeah. like, well, I'll have Amy play keyboards, and then you guys can be the opening bands. It was like the most random thing, like yeah. Raging Teens Rockably Band opening for... Mary Lou Lord and her indie rock band. And right, like, right. You know, we're playing shows with like, you know, Slim Dunlap and the replacements and Tommy Stinson <laughs> and like crazy. Elliot Smith. I was like, Elliot was like Mary Lou's buddy. He used yeah, to, yeah. when I first met her, he used to come sleep on the couch. Yeah. And he was a really nice guy, you yeah. know, and um, and obviously very talented. I wasn't usually into that kind of stuff, but right. I liked what he did, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And he was, he believe it or not, he was actually, despite his untimely death, he was a very funny guy. Yeah. And, um, he almost played drums for the uh, bass for the Raging Teens once because oh, we had yeah? a gig in New York, and Jim—I forget why Jim wasn't there yet or something had happened. But we got out of the van, but Jim hadn't come. We had the bass, but Jim hadn't shown up, and we're like, we're on in like thirty minutes. He's not there, and Ellie said, "Well, I'll play bass." So we're like literally backstage, like trying yeah, yeah. to like him get the hang of the upright, and, just yeah, yeah. and then the, the, like the eleventh hour, right. Jim came waltzing through the door. So, but uh, but he was. Fine. I remember um, we went out one night in Boston, yeah, with uh. Like me and Mary Lou and Elliot's with us, and mm-hmm. I'm with Dana from the Racketeers. And me and Dana have always had this long running thing where we can just go for hours just being goofy and talking about funny. Dana's one of the funniest people I know, right? Yeah. So he had this thing for a while where he wanted to bring the word gay back, like yeah. to its original meaning. So he would be like, you know, guys that were super into like Star Trek or Star Wars, he's like, they're really space gay, <laughs> right? You know, this whole thing. So, like, if you were really into, like, the Patriots, you'd be Patriots gay. Right, you know right. What yeah. I mean? <laughs> and Elliot was, like, a pretty, like, um, progressive guy. Yeah, you know, yeah, Part of that whole scene, like, a very much a feminist. Right. And, you know, even though he and I liked each other, I think he was kind of like, what's what's up with this guy? So, Mary Lou told me that he uh, he called her aside and was like, what's up with, with Dana and his friend, uh, Kevin and his friend Dana, like, making, like, gay jokes? And she's like, no, no, they're not making gay jokes. Like, so she had to explain the right. whole thing. <laughs> so, I remember we were, uh, we were out, like, the next night or something and I made a comment about something he goes huh you're really rockabilly gay yeah Elliot Smith said that yeah Elliot Smith I was like ah he gets it All right, cool so so yeah so he was fun he used to come to our house and um, I actually have somewhere what did I do with it I have the four track he used to use it at our house all the time oh really stay with us and make demos in fact Mary Lou has a cassette tape uh, somewhere of um, he sent out a song with uh with a sheet of lyrics, yeah, and he's like, "Here's a song. I don't think I like it. Um, 
It's yours if you want it. Because he had given her some songs before. Yeah, yeah. And she just recently found it. It's So she's got the lyrics, the handwritten lyrics on this, like, you know, BASF cassette tape. Yeah. And it's uh, it's Miss Misery. Oh, really? And he was, like, going to give it to her because he didn't like That's it. That's crazy. His famous line was, like, he gave her that uh, Figure You Out song. Yeah. And he said, he goes, I don't like it. It sounds too much like the Eagles. And I don't want to think <laughs> about Glenn Fry going down the road trying to loosen his load. <laughs> <laughs> that was Elliot's humor for you, That's right? That's amazing. Funny guy. <laughs> so, yeah, so... Uh, so things started blowing up, you know, it's weird, it's the 90s, and that was kind of like the last gasp of the music industry, really, right? you know? Right, yeah. Like, there was, like, stupid money being thrown around, yeah. like, everyone, and we were all getting in on it, it was yeah, great, yeah. you know, we're yeah. out, we're on L.A. with Marilou's band, and the Raging Teens opening, and we're, uh, we're playing at the Troubadour, right? Yeah, yeah. And they have, um, they have, like, all these record company guys come, you know, yeah. and, uh, the van looks like shit because Mary Lou had hired all these guys that were like buddies from the North Shore. <laughs> and they just really didn't give a shit about the way yeah, they looked, you know. They, right. Or they thought they probably looked cool because it looked very 1987, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Which time stands still up here, as you know. Right. So this dude, Dave, who was her guitar player, is a great guy. He lives in Middleton. Great, beautiful voice, great singer, great guitar player. Absolutely could give us zero shits about his outward appearances. Yeah, yeah. I think he was wearing like some kind of Butterfuco pants oh, and like a Steve Vai Guitar Gods t-shirt, which was like eight sizes too big and he'd cut the sleeves off. He probably got, got it free for buying a pack of strings at the store. And like he was like, what's well, a shirt, right? Yeah. So we're like, the band looks like shit. Here's like, everyone got 300 bucks to go shopping, right? Yeah. And we're like, we're like, all right, this is great. We're going to go down to Melrose, go yeah, shopping. Yeah. So everyone, we get down there, like everyone splits up and Mary's like, will you do me a favor? Will you take Dave? Because I, you know. I'm a little worried about decisions he might make in the clothing yeah, yeah. department. So when you go and like try and give him a hand, you know. So I go with him. We're going to like all these stores. He's super into like '60s stuff. Like he um, he named his kid Sid, like S Y D, but Sid yeah. Barrett, you know. <laughs> and I was like, Dave, what about this? I'm finding he's kind of like uh, you know those military tunic things. I'm oh, thinking yeah, yeah. like this is kind of a cool like a Hendrix look. And he's like, yeah, oh, yeah. I don't know. He's really getting like uncomfortable about the whole thing. So finally, I'm like, listen, I'm like kind of freaking you out. Like, is it weird that we're going clothes shopping, two guys? He's like, yeah, it's kind of freaking me out, man. I just want to kind of do my thing. And we're like, all right, dude, you know what? All good. Yeah. Do your thing. Yeah, we've talked about some ideas. I think you're on the right track, right? So we get back to the hotel. It's like later that night, and we're all having some drinks, and everyone's like showing off their outfits, like going in the bedroom, like try, trying out, check this out. You know, like someone got a leather jacket and like, you know, all this crazy stuff. So Dave's sitting in the corner really quietly. Yeah. And so I think Mary Lou was like, so Dave, what's the story, man? Did you get anything? He's like, yeah, I got something. Has this big brown paper bag. Yeah. Opens it up. A bong. <laughs> <laughs> he bought a bong. And we all died laughing. We're like, that's the best. We're like, we love you, Dave. Fuck the record company, guys. Don't don't ever change for nobody, man. It was great. So the other thing he did was um, we got an endorsement for Dr. Martin's. Yeah. So like you get, you know, this is before the internet. So you get like the chick came out with like the catalog and we all yeah, got to like yeah. pick which ones we wanted and like send it in. And like, you know, they were going to arrive like a week later at like somewhere on the tour. Yeah. So everyone's buying like, you know, I think I bought like a pair of like the three button shoes. Yeah, and yeah. I think Amy bought some like black and white, kind of like the, those broke Dr. Martens or whatever. Mm. Everyone's getting like kind of normal, kind of cool stuff for the nineties. Right. Dave buys these boots, man, that look like. They would have been the envy of any goth in the world. They were yeah. like these big knee-high boots with like <laughs> big metal like right. things across the front. And we're like, that's kind of weird. Like, what's that all about? Does Dave have like a secret side we don't right. know about? Like, we were all totally puzzled by this. x night. Yeah, Man right? We yeah. couldn't figure it out. And then he never wore them. We never <laughs> saw him wear them once. Huh. We were like, what the fuck's that all about? So fast forward like three months, we're back home. And we used to, uh, he lives in Middleton and he's kind of like out in the country. He's got a barn behind his house. Yeah. So we used to rehearse there. 
So I go over there one day, and his wife, Lynn, I'm like, where's Dave? She's like, he's on his dirt bike. He comes flying around the corner. I've got the boots on. <laughs> For like... Totally pragmatic. He's like, oh, I figured they'd be great for out in the woods, you know? <laughs> Fucking love that guy. Right? Brilliant. You're still friends with him? Oh, still, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we still we keep in touch. Mainly, yeah. mainly... He plays around every once in a while. He, he yeah. plays with... um. What's that? What's that gal's name? Is, is you know Brian Mays, the uh, kind of keyboard guy? He's yeah, older. Yeah. His mm-hmm. daughter has a band, and Dave plays with her. Oh, okay. He's a lovely guy. He's super talented. He's great. Yeah. Nice. But uh, but yeah, but I, I I just admire the hell about that about him. You know, because we're all trying to be like trying to make it. You yeah, know, yeah, in yeah. L.A., man. And right. Like, which is so hilarious in hindsight because I remember, you know, Mary Lou left Kill Rock Stars to be on um, the work group, which was essentially Sony Records. Yeah, yeah. And we did this show uh, at Spaceland in, in L.A. And uh, it's like this ultimate all-day hipster fest of, like, Elliot Smith and Mary Lou and, like, you know, John Bryan and all these people, you know? Like, right. the ultimate indie cool thing. Right. So we're out front chatting, and these kids come up to Mary Lou, and they're, like, really questioning her integrity about, like, leaving, you oh, know, right, Kill right. Rock shows and joining a major label, right? And so she's going on about, like... No, you know, I think it's a good move, and here's why. And she's explaining, like, that her A&R guy is totally cool and blah, blah, blah. Right as she finishes saying it, it's like, like red Porsche convertible pulls up with Tim Devine, her A&R guy. Yeah. Classic quintessential Hollywood, like, yeah, yeah. A&R dude. Right. Stripper chick in the passenger seat with massive fake right. cans. He's like, all right, so who needs a drink? Right. And these kids just looked at him, looked at her, and just walked away. It was brilliant, you know? Awesome. <laughs> like, if they ever make a hot like that, scene would have to be in the movie because it's yeah. fucking hilarious, man. So Yeah, I was at a red light in L.A. one day, and a, a guy pulled up next to me. It's like the middle of the night on like in Hollywood. Yeah. And red light, guy pulls up with the top down, blasting... Uh, Boz Skaggs that you know the, the uh, whatever low down yeah song. yeah yeah I'm like this is the most LA thing oh, I've yeah. ever seen in my life it's I, funny like that's such a weird time I, I quite like going out there now because I've actually met people that are from there right that, but when uh, I was going out there then and like the scene that she was certainly in it was just like I mean it was like there was so much douchebaggery going on oh, yeah. you know what I mean and like it was uh, it was almost like a comedy thing that you could almost count on it you know and you could also totally work it to your advantage you could yeah. you go go to like the Sony warehouse with a shopping cart oh yeah be like, oh, I've been really looking for like all 30 of these box sets that you yeah, just yeah. take and sell down the street at the used yeah. record store yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was, we're yeah. all milking it you know we got like uh, I remember Marilyn did this EPK thing, this electronic press kit thing. Yeah. And uh, they had these guys from Sony, but like they had just done one for the Rolling Stones like the yeah. week before. Right, right. So they're like, you know, well, it's just going to be a three day thing. It's not going to be like major production like that. But we want to like, because she'd started playing in the subway, you know, they wanted to film her in the subway. Right. So basically they were going to like follow us around for three days. Right. So um, they're like, okay, well, if we're going to go down and play in the subway. That's important. Um, is there any? Is there anything we need to know about? Like, is there anything like could, could there be any unforeseen obstacles? That, so, like, you might not be able to play. And she's like, "Well, you know, if you uh, if you go down there and there's like some dude playing, like the banjo dude's playing, right? Sometimes she's like, I can kind of haggle with him and say, Hey, listen, you know, I know you're not going to make that much tonight. What about what if I throw you like twenty? You think that that could get you out of here? Right. And the guy, I never forget this. The guy at Sony turns to like these. To, there's like a guy in charge, and he goes, <laughs> right. he goes, so make sure you take twenty thousand for incidental. <laughs> And she's like, no, I mean like twenty bucks. Twenty bucks. And he's like, well, just take that, just in case. It's like, so we got twenty grand. So I remember I'm bullshitting the guys like, we're filming this busking scene. Well, it's like, there's got to be some money in the box, man. It's not gonna look right, right if it's not yeah. fucking throwing money in. We're just crazy. milking it, you know. Because and, and I'm glad we did because I think she told me she still gets statements from them that she owes them like one point seven million dollars or right. something ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. So like they're not coming to collect. So who right, gives a right. shit, right? So the nineties though, yeah. The, the... But it's all changed now. Then that's that doesn't exist. I don't think bands get signed anymore. Do you? I know. No, do you no. hear of anybody just? Not really. I I think 
yeah, it's just pop stars now, and there's yeah, there's like ten things. But I but I like that though because it's now back to everything being DIY. People sort of building a, a catalog of music, maybe or. But the problem, just... yes and no, though the problem with that is, from the other side of the spectrum, is you're right. It's kind of cool, but it's not like if you want to do it, it's very DIY again, yeah, right? Yeah. Which is great, except for the fact. If you were in a hardcore band or a punk rock band back in the day, you know, you, you scrape your money together, you make this like thing, you put out a forty-five. Yeah. People are gonna be psyched and they're gonna buy them. Yeah. I've got like a thousand. I call them coasters. Yeah. In there, <laughs> fucking CDs. No one yeah, wants yeah. that shit. You I know, know what right? I mean? Yeah, physical media. They don't want it, you yeah. know. And the forget the streaming because you don't make any money from that. Right. So it's like, so what is the answer? I don't know. Like we do okay with vinyl nowadays. That's kind of coming back a little bit, yeah. but it's like it costs so much to make. Yeah. You can't make any money off it, so. And kids, they don't want to pay for music. They, they this generation is of the impression that it's a free commodity. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I, know. I mean, my daughter's, you know, now she's gonna be nineteen in a couple mm -hmm. of weeks, and she's she's making records and playing shows. And I, I she's into vinyl because she can go buy it used and cheap. You yeah, know, yeah. But they just they download everything. Oh, just, yeah, yeah. She's like, I don't even want to download. It. I just want to stream it. <laughs> you know, which I get. Yeah. I don't want like yeah, a, yeah. I don't want an iPod. Who cares if right. I can pay my? I, I'm guilty. I pay the Spotify. Yeah, thing. I do too. Yeah. And I'm disappointed because there's a lot of stuff on it that I might like, but there's enough there's enough on there you can get by, yeah, right? So, yeah. and every month it seems to have more. So, but they don't pay any money, right? Yeah. So, what is the musician supposed to do? The, the money's shittier now, but it wasn't, you know, in the '90s, right? It's like, crazy. I mean, like dollar and cents wise, you're getting less, you know? Yeah. So, so the the raging teens from then sort of went after the '90s. You... Yeah, well, we kind of fizzled out because Shuby left the band because he got a uh, he got he got pinched by the Boston's to be like Joe the Kid's uh, drum tech. Yeah, yeah. First, they asked me if he'd go out on a tour, and they were like they were absolutely blowing it up at that point. I mean, yeah. they're doing like they had a hit record and yeah. they're like a big deal band. So they basically were like, "Hey, you know, we can give you a salary, and you can." This is a kid that when we first went on tour in the Raging Teens, he'd never been out of. He'd been to New Jersey once yeah, with yeah. his family when he was a kid. Right. Other than that, it had been like Matt. It had been New Hampshire, and he'd been to Boston a handful of yeah, times. Yeah. Right. So you know he's getting this chance to like basically go all all over the world. So he's yeah. like, guys, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave and take this job. And so yeah. we were like, that's totally cool, and yeah, yeah. and good for him because that job led to a job with uh, the Alkaline Trio, and then he became like the head like crew guy for Black Eyed Peas and Fergie. Oh yeah. <laughs> he that dude's been to like the White House and the Super yeah, Bowl and shit. It's like, wow. Yeah. Damn, so someone else is this panned out for not I me, know, right? right? But yeah, yeah. So he left, and we had Dana. Uh, Dana was playing with us from the Racketeers for a while, but it was just never quite the same. And my daughter was quite young at the time, and I was just like, you know what? This is. I don't think I want to be doing this anymore. You know, like I, yeah. I want to do it here and there, but I don't want. I want to like, you know, figure out. My ex-wife decided she didn't want to play music anymore, so I was like, someone's going to make a living here. Yeah. So, you know, I I, I kind of gave it up yeah. for. I always played here and there, but it wasn't like we weren't actively playing. So. Right. We uh, we kind of took took time off from that, and then it's probably about eight years, nine years later, maybe even ten years. I don't know. Um, I remember I was at uh, I was at TT's, ironically, and uh, I was hanging out with Barrett Whitfield. Yep. And he said to me, uh, I was just saying like he was asking me if I'd been playing at all, and I said no, I you know I don't really have a band anymore. He's like, what do you need a band for? He's like, just make a record. Yeah. It's like make a record, pick the best guys you know. He goes, if you make a record. They'll give you a band. You want to go travel and stuff. They'll provide it. You yeah, know. Yeah. So I said, like, "That's a great idea, Barrett." So yeah. I did. I went made a record with uh, Judd from uh, the Crowns and yeah. um, uh, Johnny Shash on bass, Jerry Miller on guitar, who's like guys like a national treasure. Yeah. So I made like a. It was just like an EP, like a five or six song EP. Right. And uh, and I sent it out to a bunch of people just willy nilly, and I got uh, 
that was the first Jittery Jack recordings. Okay. And I got um, Tom Ingram, who books Viva Las Vegas, the big Rockabilly Weekender, uh, messaged me and was like, hey, listen, I got your disc. I really like it. And um, we've had a cancellation. Like, would you want to come out in like three weeks yeah. and play a show? Right. And of course, I was like, totally. Yeah, yeah. And then I was like, shit, I don't have a band. <laughs> right. So I called my buddy Deke Dickerson up. And I yeah. asked, I was like, Dick, you're going to be there, right? I'm like, yeah. yeah. And he's like, um, I was like, well, I got offered this thing. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I agreed to it, but I don't have a band. Right. So he kind of laughed. And he was like, okay, sure. And I was like, listen, I'll pay you guys. But uh, so he got, he played guitar. This guy of ours, Dave Wolf, from, uh, who I'd known from Minneapolis on, on Racketeers tours, yeah. now lived in Texas. He played bass. And um, Chris Sugarball Sprague, who's now in Little Straight Jackets, was oh, on okay. drums, which nice. was cool because I'd known Sugarball. So he used to make back up the Sprague Brothers. Or okay. Me and Matt, Matt Murphy used to call him. The Spragu Brothers. <laughs> we used to tour them in the 90s with the Rage yeah, of Teens. Yeah. So, so he was a pal. So I went out and I did it. And, um, you know, it went well. It was a lot of fun. And uh, this guy, Reb Kennedy from Wild Records, who were based out of L.A., saw the show and asked me if I wanted to come out yeah. and make a record. And I was like, all right. My kid's, like, older now. You know, she's right. I'm divorced. She lives with me, but I'm with my mom. And my mom's helping out, you know. So I'm like, well, I can go do stuff again, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. uh um. So I was going to go out there just on my own, and they were going to, like, give me a band. And I, I wrote, like, all these songs for this record. And then, like, two, three weeks before, Reb called me up and was like, hey, I, uh, so it's not going to work out to have that lineup back you up because the guitar player, this guy Omar uh, Romero, who's great, yeah, um, he's got something going on. He's not going to be able to do it. Like, is, is there a guitar player in Boston that you think that would kind of drop everything to come to L.A. in a couple weeks and make yeah. a record? I was like, Amy, you want to go to L.A. and make a record? <laughs> Yeah. She was like, sure, because she's always game to do whatever, you know? So yeah. she uh, she got on a plane with me. We went to LA. We made a record. It was fun. It was yeah. you know, it was fun to kind of be back and doing it. It's a, the label was like, we always felt a little bit out of place because they're, we were always a little bit older than everyone, I think. And, right. um, you know, and they're all, a large segment of their uh, of their label is like Mexican-American kids, which yeah. is totally cool. It's just yeah, like, yeah. I don't really know anything about that culture right, at all. Right. You know what I mean? We've yeah. since become really good pals with some people out there, which is great. Yeah. But, I, you know, I will always be thankful to Reb because Reb, uh, you know, I was kind of in the wilderness a little bit. I'd made that EP. Yeah. But Reb kind of saw something and was like, hey, you know, you want to come out? So we made that record for Wild Records. And mm -hmm. um, even though we might not have been the best fit for the label at the end of the day, I will always be thankful to him yeah, for yeah. Uh, for kind of, you know, putting me back out in the uh, in the front line, if you will. Yeah. And uh, from there, it just kind of took off. You know, yeah. we, uh, we ended up making another record. We recorded in Boston. And uh, same format, just me and Amy. Because at that point, I, I realized after playing with her again how much I missed playing with her. Yeah. And she's like my best friend too. So it's not right. like it was like this is really cool. We can we can travel together. And yeah, yeah. Work together. It's really fun. There's a cool dynamic between the two of us. So right. So we did that and um, made another record. We've gone to Europe a bunch of times now. So now I'm pretty busy and my kids left the, the nest. I'm an empty nester. Yeah. So I'm actually now just trying to like juggle ways to do music as full-time as I can yeah, and be as flexible as I can so I can get, uh, so I can, you know, go on tour and right. whatever. But it's so hard taking a band on the road. There's no money, you know? It's, yeah. it's The money's worse than it was the 90s. Right. It really is. So, you know, when everything else costs four times more. So we're, uh, we've kind of decided that we're working on this kind of like duo thing. Like, yeah. nobody panic. It's not going to be like right, right. Simon and Garfunkel or something. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, for like the smaller markets and stuff, we can travel on our own and just do like kind of a duo thing, a little bit more mellow, maybe yeah, a little yeah. more country. Yeah. And then in the bigger bigger markets, we have buddies we can like uh, use a pickup rhythm section, which is what we do. Yeah, we, yeah. Anywhere we fly, just the two of us go. Yeah, yeah. And we use a pickup rhythm section. So 
So it's great. I've got guys nice. like West Coast guys, and I've got yeah. European guys and Canadian guys. And right. We went to Australia last year. I got Australian guys now. So, so it's cool. And we send them the stuff. It's all very modern. You can email yeah. the tunes and right. get them to do a little rehearsal. So, so that's going to be our game plan for next year is to try and scale things down a little bit because it's a lot cheaper and easier to take two people out on the road. It's one yeah. hotel room. It's like, um, you know, it's two miles to feed versus four. And, you yeah. know, yeah. And because it's not a band per se, right. you know, I'm sort of – it's not like we're all in this thing together. It's like it's my gig, you know. Yeah, so I'm yeah. like, I gotta pay people. Right, you know what right. I mean? So yeah, yeah. So this way, and Amy's great. She's happy for like, uh, you know, she's she's easily pleased if she can eat well and travel and see things <laughs> and play guitar. She's yeah, happy. Yeah. So you that's know, good. so that's what we're doing now. That's where we're at. And uh, we get a, we did a Raging Teens reunion. Oh with, yeah. Last year at the Shake Up, it was the 20th anniversary at the band, which was yeah. kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we at the New England Shakeup, we did a reunion. It was a lot of fun, so we decided to do another one in December because December was um, the band basically had the first gig in December, so we right. did it at uh, did it in town, and it was such a big success that we were like, my friend Beck, who runs the New England Shakeup, just started this label called Swell Tune Records. She asked us uh, if we'd want to make a forty-five. Yeah. So I wrote a couple songs, one one being called The Drinking Age, because the band is 21 now, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we recorded that over nice. the summer, and that's coming out December 9th. So we're playing a show December oh, 9th. Nice. nice. And uh, at um, Great Scott. Yeah. So that's going to be fun. And then uh, we get all kinds of stuff planned. We're doing, you know, out-of-town stuff, January, February, March, April, probably Europe in the summer. So we're just trying to stay busy, you know? The, Keep the, the dream alive. Yeah, it seems like the, uh, the genre of viewer music, which I, I just call... Rock and roll, like at the I end do of too. the day, you yeah. know, it's it's you know rockabilly roots, whatever. But yeah. I, at the end of the day, it's to me, it's it's for, it's rock and roll, rock and roll, absolutely, yeah. Bill Haley and sure, Bill Haley was wasn't, wasn't wasn't a rockabilly artist, right, you know. Right. And even though Gene Vincent claimed he was at times, he really wasn't. Yeah, it was more of a rock and roll sound, you know. And uh, I like a lot of stuff like the Sparkle Tones and stuff like that. You yeah, know, the rockabilly thing is pretty small. It's like yeah. Charlie Feathers and you know, it's a it's very sort of distinctive. It's very southern and very tribal. It wasn't. Yeah. Like, it's not really white guys mimicking black rock and roll, right, right. which is what most of the '50s rock and roll stuff right. was. You know, it was I, its own little hybrid. I love it. But yeah. I don't claim to be like the quintessential rockabilly artist because I don't think I am. I think yeah. I'm more of a rock and roll guy. So, right. I, I see like Johnny Otis kind of too in the like at least the live. Yeah, sure. About. All right, I'll take that. That's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pay you later. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I feel like that a lot of that like Western swing rockabilly it can all. Sure, it's work. a pretty so, broad thing. It, I, you know what I worry about right now with yeah. what we're doing. Um, is my kid's a great example of this. Um, the crowd's just getting older and older. Yeah, yeah. You know. We've gone past the crowd being like, well, 10 years ago, well, no one's coming out because they got kids. Right. No one's coming out. The kids are grown now. They're yeah, just, yeah. They just don't go out anymore, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, and our thing is not cool. Yeah. The young kids. My daughter is funny. She's like, you think you're really cool, but you're not, <laughs> you know? It's just, it's the original cool. How yeah, can you yeah. not see it's cool? But I think they have this thing that's like this like weird, cheesy fucking happy days thing or something, yeah. you know? Yeah, and yeah. it's like, well, I... I get that. Why you might think that if you don't know anything about that, right? That I can whole see genre, it, and you know. Do like, you do you ever feel like limited with like? Have you ever wanted to play like, uh, you know, anything not metal or so, but like any other kind of genres of? Well, um, yes and no. I have dabbled in doing other things for the years. I'm just not a very good guitar player, and I'm not yeah. very good. I'm not a really great musician. Period. And and so I would have I would struggle yeah, yeah. doing something like that. To be honest with you, and. Um, and it's not the thing that excites me. Like, this is the music that really excites me. I, yeah. I really, you know, I like lots of stuff. Yeah. But I always, I always equate, like, primitive rock and roll is like, uh, 
you know, let's say it's electricity, right? Like mm-hmm. it's a current, if you yeah. will. Like, you know, um, you, you know, Rush is like a fucking advanced circuit board, right? right? right. Yeah, yeah. 50s rock and roll, like whether it be Little Richard or something like that, it's a fucking bare wire hanging oh, out yeah. on the wall with yeah, sparks yeah. shooting out of it. Yeah. It's, like, it's like the building block, right. you know what I mean? It's like it's about as raw and as basic as you can get. And the, to me, that's what makes it exciting, you yeah. know? And, uh, and I like it to be done as as uh as purely as possible you know i mean there's a lot of people that do hybrid stuff you know i like the stray cats back in the yeah. day because i thought they had good songs yeah yeah but it's a little corny yeah, little, yeah. i don't really yeah. and it's a hybrid it's like i always like the psychobilly thing you know yeah, when i yeah. was a kid in england my sister got she, i think she dated the dude who was like the tour manager for the meteors yeah yeah so those guys sorry lisa for ran you out but the, the, the <laughs> band used to sleep in the shed behind her house so I'd be like 10 playing yeah, yeah. in my train set and like yeah. the meteors are hanging out in the freaking living room and That's I'm like, crazy. cool, like, okay, what's up? Guy? You know, like <laughs> I want to I wanna hang with the guys, right? So, yeah, yeah. but I wasn't never that crazy about them. I It was exciting and it was kind of fun when I was younger, but I always felt like it was like, um, it was like bastardizing a music form of like, because you couldn't play it very well, you, right, right. you mix two things together. Yeah. The, the easiest way, so it was like mixing punk rock with like rock and roll or rockabilly. I like both of those things. Yeah. But I like milk and I like orange juice too. I don't like them together. You know what I'm right, saying? Right. So yeah, maybe yeah. that makes me like kind of <clears throat> silly and stuck up. And because I do like things that branch out, but right. for like for this kind of music, I'm, I'm not a big fan of like, you know, just you know, I'm not OCD. It's not right, like that. Right. I you know, I don't mind certain things that blend, but like I like the two tone ska stuff, which is right. second generation. It's certainly not right. traditional but, Jamaican ska, right. which I like a lot too. But but you know, but just for me, that's the thing that I like. You know, and there are some people that do it and do it well. Yeah. You know, uh, there's some fun bands out there that do. Uh, to kind of take little little snippets of it and, yeah. and mix it up, and that's kind of cool. I can dig it. And I, shit, I certainly don't knock anyone trying to make a buck because right. being in like a '50s rock and roll or rock event is really the financial kiss of death. You <laughs> yeah. know, there's fucking no money. Yeah. You know, some people get pushed back like, "Well, they're selling out." It's like fucking good for them. No one's right. buying. I'd be right. I right. wear a tutu on stage. Yeah. Someone's gonna fuck. <laughs> if we right. need a new Lux, man. Yeah, I wear yeah. the fucking tights and the shit. Right. You know, but no one's buying. So, but you so. can kind of. Uh, I feel like in this scene. Well, scene. If you, I wouldn't really call it a scene, but the, yeah. the the genre. There's so many. It seems like you're you're always playing festivals all the time. So it seems like that. Yeah, it's a very it's pretty uh, vibrant with uh and just. It's a, that it's a world. healthy scene. The problem is the scene's getting older. The yeah. Southern California scene's pretty good. Yeah. Because there's a lot of younger like like sort of like Mexican American kids that get really. Yeah. I think they're really into it because they got great hair. Yeah. You know what oh, I mean, yeah. they can. They, yeah, yeah. they don't bald. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like they can yeah. really go for it. But um, so that scene's pretty cool. But around the globe, it's starting to just get kind of older. But I suppose that happens. I'm sure, like the original, in England, for example, the original Teddy Boy guys in the '50s, once the '70s came around, they were like, "What the hell is all this?" Yeah, yeah. You know, so I'm just waiting for that day that, and the old guys are dying off one by one. I'm waiting for me to be the old guy. Right. I want that satin jacket, baseball cap, bad mustache right. tour. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Will I just get flown out? Like, what? Who are these people? Where's my Walker? Yeah. So you know, it's. Uh, it's nice, but as my friend Sean Mentor said, who's a great guitar player, lives in Maine. He was in the band High Noon. Yeah. Um, he said, the rockably world is a vast ocean that's as deep as a puddle. <laughs> and it's totally true. Like, I can go to right. any town USA, yeah. and I can get a gig. Yeah. And if I'm, there might be 50 people there, right. 100 people, and there's never ever going to be more than those people. Right. There. That's it. No yeah. one else is coming. You know what I mean? So, you know, and there are certain markets that do a little bit better, but but not really. Right. You know, that's it. So I remember someone saying <laughs> The uh, rockabilly scene is like a uh, a retirement home for uh, white power guys. 
which you know i well i, I think, think they more mean skinheads than skinheads like, yeah know. well they, i've heard it too about like it's the it's the punk rock retirement home i've heard that too yeah, you know? yeah but it's i tell you i played a gig in um germany one time yeah. where uh i remember my buddy deke warned me about it and said you know it's highly illegal to uh, own any kind of like Nazi paraphernalia. Yeah, yeah. He goes, so they've all kind of embraced the stars and bars. Yeah, yeah. So he goes, if you see that shit going on, he goes, it's not the same in England because the English guys kind of thought it was like this southern music right, rebel right. thing. They yeah, didn't yeah. really get it, and there's still a big battle about that going on. But but apparently this thing in Germany, it was a thing. We, we fucking get to this club and it's like someone had painted the place with like rebel flag paint. Or oh something. really? And, like, oh, and this guy, the only things he could say in English was uh, Gene Vincent and Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> <laughs> so we 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 did our set, get the fuck out of there. But yeah, you know, yeah. but that's not the case for the most no, part. I mean, it's no, black music, you know. So yeah. uh, so you know, you, you like any scene, you're gonna get that. I'd say way more in the punk rock scene. Yeah, that's what I've that. always said with rockabilly. I said I, I can't imagine because it's all blues based rock music yeah. that was so well. Which is the irony with this whole skinhead thing too, because right. it's like the original skinheads were into fucking like Jamaican ska, Jama- yeah, exactly, rock and stuff. It's like that wasn't until like the late '70s and '80s, like morons, you know. Kind of put this Co-opted ideology it. with it and yeah. took it over, you know. Which yeah. is now it's like skinhead, the evil skinhead. It's yeah, like, what? I you know. know. There was and there was that period, and that's sort of when I got out of the skinhead thing. Was you get lumped into that? Yeah, the fact that you have to explain that oh, there's actually another kind of skin is yeah. This is really stupid. what it is. And the other thing was I was more of a progressive, like so I didn't yeah. really, I wasn't a violent guy. I wasn't a yeah. And I don't know, I wasn't that much into oi and that kind of stuff. Sure, yeah. I remember me and Dana were out one day and there was a dude drove by in a in a truck, pickup truck, and he had like the uh you know, the Nazi symbol with the red thing and they're like the no Nazis. Yeah, yeah. And Dana's like, Was there anyone that's really for them at this know, point? Right, Is yeah. it really necessary to yeah. have that? You know, like yeah, yeah. Like if you have the actual thing on there, like okay, well that's a statement. That's that's, that's just like, you know, yeah. it's the fucking sky blue. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I you know, like of course, no one wants that. That's a dumb thing to even have on your yeah. fucking truck, you know. There was a, a two-week period where I saw a different white power guy yeah. at uh, Stop and Shop in Beverly here, mm-hmm. uh, North Beverly, and uh, the first time I remember, he it was a guy with his wife, you know, and I recognized him actually. I won't say his name, but he's yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably know who he is too, but and then. Uh, the next time I saw a guy and he was paying for his groceries, he had a big 88 tattoo on his hand. Oh, boy. And that, the whole deal. But he had like his, uh, she's like, oh, do you have a stop and shop card? And he's, he had the keychain with all the seat. And I just remember thinking how absurd that was. This guy's like this, you know, I hate Jews and I hate, you know, yeah, yeah. the snap. But he's like, oh, I like to, you know, I want to make sure I get my. Get my, my discount. Get my discount on my stuff here and. Yeah, I mean it's it's it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's. I never really experienced much of that. Even like back when I was, you know, going to punk shows and stuff. Yeah. I, mean, I knew it was around, but like. Yeah, I didn't think it was as. I think it was like like most things. It was just something that got like a. It's just something that like people like the press or whoever like ran with it and made it a thing. I never. I don't think I ever met one. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. You know, there was a couple, and I. And if there was, was like I mean I, trust me, I have racist friends in the right, past, yeah. sure, you know, yeah. but but it was more like. You know, I think all of like, yeah, you're being a jackass. Come on, yeah. dude. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you're right. You know, I grew up in a small town, and I'm just, yeah, I'm just now reminded. You know, we see it all the time. Exactly, but not like they're not like branding 88s right. on themselves and like you know looking to start the fourth fucking Reich. You know, right, I never, right. I never really ran into any of that. You yeah. know, it's uh, that just didn't really exist. So yeah, you yeah. know, but I guess it was out there and yeah, in 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 the early 90s and stuff. But I again, I was not, I was very removed from that scene. Yeah, yeah. So I. uh they weren't coming to Dead Milkman shows. No, no. Or the yeah. Dead, for that yeah, matter. Either, yeah, right? I know, right? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. 
And uh, I guess just to end it, you uh, so your daughter plays music and she's she does, doing, yeah, she's I went great. I saw her with with you uh, maybe a year or two ago at Coto uh, in Salem, and it was one of those like, you know, your friend is talking up his kid playing yeah, music, yeah. but she's actually very talented and uh, she's so great. You know, she's um, she's been busking now too, yeah, which is great. So people might see her out in Harvard Square or Park. Yeah, the winter's coming; she's playing in Park Street, yeah. But she's a great guitar player. She like yeah. five finger picks. She's a great songwriter. She's, yeah, yeah. And she's very prolific. She's constantly writing. Like she has a record out, which I think is great. But she's like, please, I wrote that when I was like sixteen. <laughs> I'm eighteen now, right? right? So, but she's into like really. My record collection is like rapidly shrinking because she's just stealing Keeps them taking all, stuff, yeah. which is fine. Take yeah, yeah. it, you know, yeah. have at it, you know. And uh, but she's super into like. Um, She's all over the map. Like she loves like Elliot Smith's obviously her favorite, you know. Right. So it's a real shame that she never got to meet him. But right. um, she one of her prized possessions is she has a picture of her mom pregnant with Elliot, and then they did a memorial show for Elliot. Like uh, Annabelle was like about fourteen. She went out yeah. in New York, and Mary Lou took her with her, and she went out and she played. Oh, nice! And uh, Elliot's sister gave her Elliot's guitar strap. Really? So she's got that. So she's oh, that's like, amazing. But she's into like she loves like um, the zombie. She likes a lot of sixty stuff. Nice. Um, she went to see the Jesus and Mary Jane last yeah. night. She's oh, into a lot of like weird, a lot of indie rock stuff, yeah. and you know she's all over the map. But she's she's very open minded, which is good. So, yeah. so yeah. So who knows with the uh, you know I've, she's at college because I told her if you want to be a musician, find a way to make a living because yeah, it's yeah. very hard. But yeah, yeah. She's exactly. studying music therapy, which I got to be honest. When she first told me that, I thought it was like fucking basket weaving or something. Right. You know what I mean? I was like, what? <laughs> you know, be right. a guy from Massachusetts music. What? Yeah, yeah. That. T word yeah. we don't talk about, <laughs> but apparently it's quite a burgeoning thing. So you know nice. she uh, she actually might be able to make a living doing that and incorporate playing music with work, which is always cool, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, and play gigs. She's done some touring and she's nice. making another record now. And uh, so yeah, I, you know, hopefully she uh, they find a way to like repackage music in a format that you have to buy it again, and I then know, she right? she can become a, you know what, what will it be? I don't know, holograms or something like yeah. you know. I don't know what that's going to be, but if they figure it out, hopefully yeah. she's at that cusp. She gets in on it, and she can help support you. And yeah, in my old age, I'm going to need yeah. some fucking yeah. taken care of, right? <laughs> Definitely, it's a true man. story, man. So yeah. Uh, so yeah, well, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for having me, man. I love your yeah. podcast. So I, I hope that I was entertaining enough yeah, that no, people definitely. won't be like, "Who the heck fucks this guy?" Yeah, yeah. And you <laughs> said December 9th, uh, Great Scott. December 9th, the Great right. Scott. We will be the Raging Teens reunion. We're playing. It's a swell, swell tune records uh, night. So because yeah. that's who's putting the record out. Bloodshot okay. Bill from Canada. Yeah. Um, Nate Gibson, who's originally from Boston. Yeah. Nate wrote the Star Day record label book about the label yeah yeah he interviewed like willie nelson the book's right. awesome yeah yeah um and and he's originally from boston he wrote he made a record with um rex trailer remember oh, really? the uh, the tv yeah, yeah. the boston tv yeah, cowboy yeah. Oh, yeah. he made a record with him back in the 90s and uh, he has a big huh. song about necco wafers oh, really? he's really into necco awesome. wafers so so he's got a new uh, 45 coming out too the same day yeah and then uh sean Manchin from high noon is going on the bill too so it's going to be a really fun old school rock and roll show nice. at the great scott all right and uh, yeah, we'll cool. have a good time. Hopefully awesome. people come out. Cool. Thanks, man. All right, brother. <laughs>